Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you might be or wherever, whenever you're listening to this podcast. We're here on a Friday night in sunny Southern California. My name's Owen. I'm joined by my good friend Willie, and this is a show we like to call Hot Takes Only. That's had its name changed about five different times. Willie, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, buddy. How about you? Can't complain. Another good week here in California. A lot to get to in this wonderful world we like to call Sportsland Ball thing. You know, you know what's even crazier? Go for it. And this segues into our topic: the fact that we've had good weather at the British Open, good conditions. Yeah, day one conditions were really, really good. Um, day two a little worse. A but... little worse than day two, and it's actually a lot of players were talking about this, namely Tiger Woods on day one, talking about the rollout on some of the green, on some of the fairways. You were getting sixty to seventy yards of roll. You know, guys were hitting three woods, four hundred yards, and and unable to keep the ball in the fairway. And that's a really tough thing to judge uh, at the Open Championship specifically because you could map out a course to play, you know, six or six or five irons off the tee. And it's be incredible. Longer shots if you don't get that roll. It's incredible, man. Like you said, some players were saying, particularly on the first day, how the course is firmer than you know they've ever seen it. If you were playing in the open, Owen, with your golf experience, how would you have played? Would you have been aggressive, hit a lot of drivers, or would you hit a lot of short irons? Um, Shorter irons. It, it depends, but I probably would have leaned on the side to hit fewer drivers um, mm-hmm. just because a lot of the holes where players hit drivers, they knew uh, they were either A, downwind, or B, had a carry distance that's manageable for them. Um, the beautiful thing about golf is that every every player is different and every player's swing is different, every player's game is different, so they adapt it to the course. And, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, obviously it's a case of who can get the ball and the hold the fewest amount of times. Um, but it's it's one of those situations where it's it's really good to see how different players with different approaches go at the golf course. Um, and for me, I, I hit the ball probably about average for a Tour Pro, maybe a little longer. Um Probably not, now that I think about it. But I'd probably say I'd lean on the side where I hit fewer drivers, um, unless there are holes where I know that if I hit driver, I have the lowest possible uh, margin for error. That's kind of the big thing in golf is minimizing your margin for error, um, making sure that, um, or sorry, maximizing your margin for error, minimizing the potential for making mistakes. And that's that's the one thing about golf that I really enjoy is that, that kind of grind to get better at, the really, really small things, um, and, and to just try to get better than you were the day before. Um, but without getting too, I guess, philosophical, Willie, I, I want to know who, you know, we've obviously seen two days of play here and, and just about, I think, 6, 6.30 a.m. Um, British time as they're getting ready for the third round. I want to know who you think the most surprising name to miss the cut was and if there's anyone you're keeping an eye on as far as, uh, especially t- today slash tomorrow is concerned, and then obviously uh, the final round on Saturday night, Sunday morning. Sure, bro. So I will answer your question first. Though, let's set the stage uh, for the viewers in the sense that I think, as a golf fan, this is an incredibly uh, fun leaderboard to watch. You've got everything. You've got Chalk and guys like Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy. You've got young guns like Xander Schauffele and Tony Finau. Um, you've got wild cards and Pat Perez and Kevin Kisner. You've got maybe the two best players to, to not win a major yet in Fowler and Kucher. Um, in terms of what I'm uh, most surprised about, uh, 
I would say the player I'm most surprised about is Justin Thomas, considering he actually shot very well uh, the first day. And then um, the player that I am going to keep an eye on uh, and that who I thought was actually the the most surprising has got to be Kevin Kisner, considering how he um, really hasn't played very well this year, but I actually think he's going to win the tournament. Interesting. Um, it, it's, you know, it's notoriously tough to convert a 36-hole lead, um, much less a 54-hole lead, uh, on the PGA Tour, much less in a major championship, but that, that's a bold call, on it, and I don't think it's, it's that, I don't know, out of left field to say he's going to win just because he's done this before on the biggest stage. I mean, you remember the Players' Championship, I think it was about three years ago, right? Uh, when Ricky Fowler won in the playoff. It, Kisner was right there, shot for shot. I mean, he had a putt on 18 from just off the green to win the thing outright to avoid the playoff. And, you know, he came up short there, obviously, but it, he showed a lot of game for a player who had really flown under the radar for pretty much his entire career. Uh, and he still flies under the radar for a lot of people, but... Um, you know, it's one of those things where, as for as, as little recognition as he get he gets on uh, on the big stage, it's no one is really surprised to see him play as well as he has, and, and that's the good thing about it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And he, you know, like he was also, like you said, in the Players Championship. He was right there in the PGA Championship last year. The thing that I I think that impressed me the most about him is just his grit. I mean, he's so – he's a fighter. He's really good around the greens. Like, he's really good. Um, and the thing is, I, what I like – you said there's a lot of different ways to play this golf course, you know. Kisner stuck to his game, you know. Hit the fairways. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily hit – you know, he's not going to bomb the ball like Rory McIlroy has been this weekend. But he knows when he gets on the greens. You know, Pat Perez said it this week the best, you know. He's in the championship because he's not – even though he's not driving the ball well on these greens, he feels like he can make anything. And I think the same is for Kisner. When he gets around the greens, he can make shots. And I like him to win this tournament uh, because of that. Yeah, and early on yesterday's telecast, uh, I guess this morning's telecast, uh, Nick Faldo was talking about Kevin Kisner's putting stroke, uh, and he was really enamored with it. And you know with someone who's won as many majors as Nick Faldo is that much of a fan of your putting stroke, then you're doing something right. Uh, and, and clearly through two rounds he's shown that he's he is doing something right. And it's actually interesting. You look at the uh, the Open Championship and kind of what it represents and the players who have won it. Uh, Jordan Spieth last year uh, is not the longest of hitters, but he's longer than average on, on tour. Um, and you think of guys who win majors. Uh, Brooks Kepka, who just won the U.S. Open back-to-back, hits the ball a mile and then some. Uh, Dustin Johnson won the U.S. Open before Brooks Kepka went back-to-back. Again, that same thing. It hits the ball a country mile. So it's 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 interesting to see Kisner and Johnson at the top of the leaderboard just because they don't right. hit the ball necessarily all that far, but they're very accurate. They're very they stick to their game plan. They know what they're good at and they play to those strengths. And I think that that helps players like them long term. Uh, and obviously Zach Johnson's still in his his mid to late thirties, still contending in major championships. No, it's it's very impressive, man. Like you said, they're not. They're not the longest of hitters, and I'm curious, Owen. You know, when you were when you were playing, you know, what was your approach for for scrambling? Because I think the guy, the the thing that's really amazed me this week when I've watched guys is just how they've been able to. Some guys at the top have really just been able to, like you said, even if they if they don't hit the longest or they hit an errant iron shot, been able to save par um, just by scrambling. You know, Ricky Fowler did that well today. We've seen Zach Johnson do it. Kevin Kisner's done it. 
And it just impresses me to see all the imagination they have around the greens. Yeah, and, and that's the buzzword that a lot of really good players will use when they talk about the short games is imagination. Uh, part of the short game is obviously the technique, and, and we remember a couple of years ago when Tiger Woods was kind of playing with his swing, he was thinning chips, he was hitting it fat, he was uh, just in, in all sorts of bad places around the greens. But the one thing that remains constant for good players is they have good enough technique, but they also have incredible imagination. And that's the one thing that sets apart the good players from the great players, is the players who, when they get around the greens, they're not just thinking, how do I make the fewest, how do I make the lowest score on this hole, is how do I approach this differently? How do I approach this in a way that suits my game and what I bring to the table? And a lot of times that's that can hurt you as a golfer when you get inside your own head. You try to get too, too creative. You, you get too too far into your own head, and and that can hurt you. But a lot of times, guys are thinking they've got something creative, but it's not super elaborate. It's not overcomplicated. You know, guys from you know the front of the green, if it's closely mown, guys aren't going to be taking out a sixty-four degree wedge like Phil Mickelson has, or yeah, a sixty-degree wedge incredible. like it's pretty much tour standard, and hitting a flop shot. No, they're going to take. A very, they're going to take either a short iron or a wedge and put it back in their stance and hit a little bump and run shot because that's, you know, you take out the kind of intangibles when you when you keep the ball on the ground. So it's or not the intangibles, but the yeah. you keep the uncontrollable elements up right out at least some of them, and, and that's something that that serves a lot of players well when you when you again circle back to this. They talk about imagination around the greens, and that really is one of the the biggest things, if not the single biggest thing that a, a player can do is, is have a good imagination with a short game. Is it, does it get frustrating, though, when you, you know, like Ricky Fowler today, does it get frustrating even when you're scrambling well, when you're missing greens in regulation, and, you know, maybe you hit a good drive and you're just your iron shot's just off? Yeah, I mean, that that's golf, though. It's, it's really hard to have a situation where every part of your game is clicking. And we've talked about this every time golf comes up on the show, that – it's that much more impressive when you look at what Tiger Woods did in the 2000s because he didn't necessarily always have his A game, but he was still able to win by ridiculous margins. He was still able to win at a ridiculous pace, uh, and I honestly wouldn't be surprised to see him win again at that pace. Probably not, just because you know naturally it's hard. It's harder to hit the ball 300 yards when you're 42 than it is when you're 22. So it's one of those things where. It, it, it really does remind you how tough this game is, and it's it's really hard. You can ask anyone from Roy McIlroy to Jordan Spieth to Ricky Fowler to basically anyone on tour. They will all tell you the same thing, that if one part of their game is working, another part is just off. Or if another part of their game is you know not quite there, then another part is just amazing. So it's, it's when you can put all of those together. All together. That's usually when a player is going to separate themselves but again that's so hard to do and you just don't see it as much that's that's when you see those runaway performances your your wins by five or six or seven shots uh i think anything anything above about a three shot win is is an indication that a player is playing really well and in the case of guys like roy mcelroy and jordan spieth who've won multiple majors already in their career still in their 20s we we don't even know what their ceiling is I mean, they're, they're still going. Tiger Woods, we kind of figured out what his ceiling was when he completed the not just the career Grand Slam, but the Tiger Slam when he held every single major at once, which is just, again, unheard of. And that's the, kind of like you said, I mean, you know, Tiger was unbelievable. But that's the exciting thing that we have right now is, you know, we have a, 
a trio of golfers and you know the Jordan Spieths and the Roy McIlroys and the Brooks Kepkas and the Dustin Johnsons that you know could be elite and then we have a sea of young guys just soaring with talent you know that could that could break one in so let me ask you Owen out of all the guys that that haven't won a major uh this week who do you think is most likely to win is it Tony Finau is Ricky Fowler Matt Kuchar Tommy Fleetwood which of the un the unproven major winners do you think has the best chance of winning their first one this week. Well, that's a great question because the, you know you could go for the kind of sexy answer, the uh, the big name answer. You could go for the Tony Finau who hits the ball a country mile, and, he does. or the Ricky Fowler who he doesn't make the, enough putts for me though, Tony Finau. Yeah, I, I I definitely see that, but I think he's an underrated putter. I, I think from especially from what I saw today, uh, the limited coverage I was able to catch uh, before true. going to work, uh, he he's got more game on the greens than I think a lot of people give him credit for, just because he hits the ball so far. And obviously, the stereotype is guys who hit the ball really far aren't that great around the greens. But true, uh, you know, you have your bit, your the the big answers, the uh, the eye popping ones, the the Tony Finaus, the Ricky Fowlers. You know, Fowler obviously the really charismatic personality, the really good just all around person. Um, but I'm actually gonna go for someone who has been. His rise has been nothing short of meteoric in the game over the last, I don't know, 18 to 24 months or so, and that's Tommy Fleetwood. Okay. He obviously has proven he can do it. He he won the race to Dubai last year, but he just has this element of his game that no matter how well one facet of his game is doing, he just seems to be there. I mean, he could hit the ball sideways off the tee. But he still finds a way to score, and that's—I mean—it's it, kind of a broken record. But that is the hallmark of an elite player: is someone who can figure out how to make a low, who, to post a low score without their best stuff. And for me, Tommy Fleetwood is that kind of guy. Uh, whether or not it specifically happens this week is honestly anyone's guess. I mean, obviously Matt Kuchar, after the disappointment last year, the kind of back and forth battle with Speed on Sunday, he's still right there, two shots off the lead. Uh, but I. If you were to point a gun at my head and ask me right now, I would say Tommy Fleetwood. What, and what do you think out of all the guys? He is he's definitely an intriguing pick. You know, he's he performs well at majors and like you said he can perform without his A game. What do you think is going to ultimately separate him from the pack this week? I think opinion? I think it's his ability to not just his his quote unquote ball striking, it's his ability to manipulate the golf ball to to do what he needs to do. he He's kind of known for having this, especially on his irons, this kind of three-quarter abbreviated follow-through. And that's something that's actually really effective in controlling the not only the flight, but the spin of the golf ball. And that's something in these conditions that is so underrated, but I think uh, by a lot of golf fans, I would say. Uh, and, and that's something that he does really, really well. So I, I wouldn't put it past him to have his, uh, his ball striking be the one thing that kind of carries him over the line if conditions get really bad on uh, on Sunday and certainly tomorrow. Do you think that his, I mean, I guess do you think his, he's not his lack of experience, but do you think, you know, if he's in the final round with a, with a guy who's won before, say like a, a Rory McIlroy or Jordan Spieth, do you think that that lack of being able to break through could affect him? Because I like what I've seen from both of those players, and you know, I wouldn't if I'm Tommy Fleetwood, as talented as he is, and as far as he hits the ball, I would not want to play against them. 
you know, in, in the final round, potentially. Right, that's that's definitely true, but I think we've gotten to a point in the game where, yes, you have your guys, your Brooks Kepkas, your Jordan, your, not Jordan Spieth, uh, he, hits, he hits the ball decently far, uh, your Rory McIlroy's, your Dustin Johnson's, your Justin Thomas's, your uh, Tiger Woods's, is, obviously he was kind of the first one to, to hit the ball a mile and a half, your Luke Lists, um, guys who hit the ball just a mile. Um, but he, you see other guys who just aren't intimidated by that at all. I mean, you look at Kevin Kisner and Zach Johnson. These guys are pretty much average to below average for, for tour distances, but they, they, they figure out ways to get it done. So it's, it's really, it, it doesn't really make all that much of a difference. I would say at this point, uh, especially in a major, you're, you're kind of focusing on your own game because you know, what's at stake here. You know, you're not just playing for another PJ tour event. You're playing for, an open championship for some it's their national open for others it's just this you know it's one thing to be a, a a winner on a professional tour it's another to be a major champion and that's something that that really gets you to focus on your own game and i think that serves uh that serves guys who who aren't the the big bombers i think it serves them well because they they know they have to stick to their game plan sure and it's it's so interesting man i mean do you think though if the can and on to that last point do you think the big hitters, particularly the ones that have been aggressive, like, could be in trouble if the conditions pick up? For example, like the out of the golfers I've seen, Rory McIlroy has probably been maybe the most aggressive. He takes out a lot of drivers, and he's kind of gotten away with it in part because the you know the rough isn't uh, as deep in all parts. But it, it strikes me as something where um, you know if you're too aggressive. Uh, you could get in trouble, and, and I'm curious to see you know who plays the smartest coming into the weekend. Yeah, that's definitely going to be something to watch, especially with someone like McElroy with his his length. Uh, I mean, he's he's not a big guy, but he 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 gets the ball out there very very far, uh, and, and it'll be definitely interesting to see, like you said, what they kind of do to mitigate that uh, in their approach. But uh, just getting a sense of of what the course is going to do within the first couple holes uh, is going to be so important for, for the guys who hit it farther because they'll have to adjust their game plans uh, accordingly. You know, you, you can't... The thing about the Open that's so nice is that you, you can't have the same approach work every single day. That's kind of the same in every every tournament, but especially in the Open when the elements are more of a factor than they usually are. Yeah, it's... um Like you said, uh, I mean, the elements are... You know, so much of it, and um, you know, fortunately for some of them, you know, the the tougher draw, um, I guess, unfortunately for some of them, the tougher draw was the late Thursday, early Friday morning, and it's impressive to see, um, you know, guys like McElroy, you know, survive that because they certainly had the the harder end of the draw. Absolutely. Um, kind of wrapping up this section. I mean, obviously, we'll we'll know what happens by pretty much mid. Mid Sunday, uh, noon on Sunday, I think is when the, we'll, we'll have the final round come to a, a close. And I just want to get a sense, Willie, of uh, are you sticking by Kevin Kisner to pull this thing out, or are you are you looking for someone else to uh, hold the Clara Jug on Sunday? Yeah, so I, I think Kevin Kisner is ultimately going to break through, and I think that uh, Ricky Fowler is going to give him a serious challenge. I really like how he he was able to grind out the round today, and. You know, he's played on other than kind of a shaky back nine today. He's been playing some really good golf. And, you know, he's he, if he can kind of just eliminate those mental lapses where he'll just he'll hit a bad shot here or there or have a bad stretch, 
then I just think he's getting stronger and stronger, and I think he's he's going to give Kisner a run for his money this week. And but what about you? Uh, I I would say I would stick by my original pick, thankfully, because he made the cut in Francesco Molinari, sitting at even par for the tournament. Wow, six shots off the lead, tied with a a one Tiger Woods. I think both of them are going to make pretty big moves tomorrow. Uh, but I think Molinari, just his ability to keep the ball on the fairway and, and to get the most out of out of the the kind of run out that we see at Open Championships, I think that'll help him get get it over the line. He's a very notoriously accurate driver of the golf ball, which you need to do in Open Championships, and he's a very solid iron player, which again you need to do in Open Championships. You can get away with not being the greatest putter in the world. I mean, you obviously need to be able to make some putts here and there, uh, but. He, he puts well enough uh, from what I've seen of him to get it done. So I, I think this is his to lose. Wow, that's incredible. So is this, do you think Carnoustie's, it's a favorable enough chaser's golf course for I, guys? I think so because it's one of those courses where it's, it, it, it can get you when your guard is down. Because, you know, obviously we've, we've seen a few scores under par, but it's not like everyone in the field is under par. Uh, it, it is a tough, tough golf course, and they call it Carnoustie for a reason. It, is it, it, it can get nasty, especially 18 with the burn just short of the green. We've seen Van Develde in 95. Uh, Kisner today hit it in there. Exactly. And, and Sergio, who almost hit it, uh, actually hit this one shot in the morning that hit, I think, towards the bottom of the burn, bounced back up into the uh, into the rough. That was incredible. Uh, so yeah. uh, it, it, it's anyone's guess as to who's actually going to get this done, but uh, you know that's, that's the beauty of the Open, and, and we'll see. <laughs> And like you said, to wrap it up, it'll be awesome. And a lot of guys like Danny Willett's right there. I mean, gosh, I mean, you know, Brooks noted, Kepka is what I want. Liverpool there. fan, Danny Willett. He is Danny Willett. Uh, yeah, that's right. He is. Uh, John Vandeveld's doing commentary for uh, French TV. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and right alongside him doing uh, commentary for Scotland. I think he's Paul O'Reilly Scottish. Maybe he's Irish. Oh, Paul O'Reilly. Paul O'Reilly doing commentary as well. Wasn't he like going into the weekend? He was really far back at one point, like nine or ten strokes back. Yeah. They said commentary before one. That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, Vandeveld's collapse opened the door for Laurie, and the rest is, is history, as I say. That's right, man. So, so uh, yeah, moving on. A nice, putting cool. a nice little bow on the open. It'll be a nice weekend for us. Um, mm-hmm. I know we don't talk about golf a lot in the show, but you know, obviously, when there's a major, we we have to kind of acknowledge it. And both of us, being the big golf fans that we are, kind of have to. At least great. acknowledge that it's there to mm-hmm. begin with. Uh, over to uh, back stateside baseball. Uh, coming off the All Star break, uh, you know another another great time to unwind and and watch the All Star game, the Home Run Derby, the Celebrity All Star game. Um, it, it's just a, a great time uh, for the baseball the baseball world, I guess it's a, it's a nice time to refresh and, and get everything back together for a long second half. And then eventually postseason for some teams. And speaking of some teams, uh, those Los Angeles Dodgers who came up notoriously short in last year's world series to the Houston Astros, uh, made the first big acquisition of the pre trade deadline era of or pre trade deadline part of the season acquiring uh, Orioles shortstop superstar Manny Machado for a group of prospects. And, Willie, I want to get your sense of what you think this Machado trade is going to do for the Dodgers if this puts them over the line, and if not, why not? So, I'll give you two answers. Uh, 
The first one is yes, intuitively on paper, uh, definitely. Um, you know, they they've been playing really good baseball. They've got an incredible lineup. Um, Machado obviously makes it better and that infield better. Um, they've got really good starting pitching. Uh, they still need bullpen help, but you know, on paper, I think they're they're definitely, if not before, definitely now the best team in the National League. Um, the only reservation I'd give them is they're in a really tight division race, and I think everyone's just assuming the Dodgers are going to win the division, which, if I'm a betting man, I would say yes. But, um, you know, like, they got to win the division first. But, yes, I think that this definitely makes them the National League favorites. What do you think, Owen? The National League favorites, I think, might be a stretch, but definitely division favorites, uh, I, I, I would agree. Well, My, who do you got over the, the NL? First, okay, who do you got? Who would that's the thing, though, with the NL. The, the NL is so wide open that it's 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 honestly too close to call at this point in the season. Obviously, the second half is a good time for us to see who really separates themselves mm-hmm. from the rest of the pack. But there, there hasn't been one team in the NL this year who has just grabbed the rest of the league uh, by the balls and said, this, th- this league is ours, come get it. Uh, we thought for a long time especially after they won the World Series in 2016. It was going to be the Cubs. That hasn't really panned out. Like You thought the Cardinals were always going to be there. They recently fired Mike Matheny and some of their coaching staff. You yep. thought it was maybe going to be the Washington Nationals, but they've been very disappointing if you've looked at that roster. Yep. Um, they've had injuries, of course, but so does every team, and I think they, they may have a case for saying they've had it the worst, but again, I think it's an underperforming team, uh, all things considered. You look at the Atlanta, Bra- the upstart Atlanta Braves, who I had winning maybe 50 games this year, uh, who have already surpassed that, and, and we're not even at the end of July. Uh, you have the Philadelphia Phillies, who again, like the Braves, weren't expected to do much this year, but with the acquisitions of Carlos Santana from the Indians and uh, Jake Arrieta, uh, both free agents uh, from the Cubs and Indians, it's it's. There's so many different ways the NL could go this year that there's no one who's a clear favorite. Maybe the Dodgers, based on the fact that they've done this before and they've been so close the last couple of years. But again, like you said, they need another arm in the bullpen. I think that the bridge to Kenley Jansen right now is too unclear for any top team with those aspirations. I mean, you think of you think of other top teams as well who have those kind of issues that there's no you know there's no bona fide setup man and there's no uh there's no bona fide setup man to their closer all, all those teams have good closers uh but there's no one guy who's going to hand the ball who you're going to hand the ball to in the seventh or eighth inning and be okay this guy's going to shut the game down for us before we get to the closer so it's really yeah. the nl could go anyway it def, definitely but i i would say um and we'll get into the teams all teams here but you know as much of a as open as the National League is, and as much as the Dodgers need relievers, I mean, their starting pitching looks really solid. I mean, they, they're deep, and they've got a bunch of good starters. Um, and I just think overall their talent level is just better than, than any other team that's contending. I mean, you could say the Cubs, but even the Cubs definitely need more starting pitching help. So, you know, I think if there's one thing that that is amazing to me about this year's deadline, and maybe we just say it every year, but I feel like every single team – in the NL or the AL that um, is competing, maybe besides the Astros, uh, needs pitching in some way. 
Yeah, and, and I would say even the Astros need pitching. Maybe not in the starting rotation, but just in the, in the bullpen. Uh, yeah, Ken Giles obviously getting sent down yeah, uh, is not right. a good thing, and especially when you when you go out and get a guy like Giles, you assume that he's going to be your closer. Anything that hasn't but that. panned out, and he has been, you know, before he got sent down, obviously he, he wasn't doing so hot, and then the whole confrontation with his manager, and then it it, it just kind of spiraled for uh, for the for the Astros closer. The only thing I'd say about the Dodgers and and you know should they okay should they win the NL again should they defend their pennant they have to play one of the following teams all right hear me out the Boston Red Sox who again won today and had the best record in baseball the New York Yankees who have the scariest lineup in baseball when they're all healthy the Houston Astros we know how good they are they're defending world champions they have a rotation that's five or six deep the Seattle Mariners who have a sneaky good lineup and a good rotation and are going to go and get someone to help them make a run at October this year. Or how about the team who won the pennant in 2016, the Cleveland Indians? I mean, these are these are not bad teams by any imagination. Obviously, the Indians' record is the lowest of those teams, but it, they're, they're not a bad team. They just happen to be in a division that's that's helped them out a little bit. And at the same time, they've taken advantage of some of those situations. So it's it's... They're going to be that playoff team from the NL, the AL Central. Excuse me. No one is really making a claim as to why they're going to be there. Um, but it, regardless of how many wins they have, they're still a very good team. And so, if you're the Dodgers and you have to play any one of those teams, I don't know how much you like your chances. If if I'm honest, even with the Indians acquiring, uh, sorry, especially with the Indians acquiring Brad Hand and Adam Simber uh, a couple days ago. But see, I'll I'll play the I'll play the the devil's advocate here. Um, you know, as good as as scary as the Red Sox are, you know, they do they could use like you've talked about before a second, you know, really more starters behind Chris Sale. I mean, I guess who would be your number two? You can have Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, you know, David Price, the Yankees, the same thing. They need someone behind Severino. Um, you know, at the same time. The Astros, um, Correa, getting Correa back will help, but um, even though the, uh, their bullpen is much better, um, their bullpen can still be a question mark. And uh, the Indians, they they still have holes. They need another outfielder. And if there's anything we've learned from even tonight's game, I mean, they still you still can't really trust their bullpen. Uh, maybe until maybe you get Andrew Miller back, but um, yeah, I think honestly. Yes, all those AL teams look great on paper, but what makes the Ted line so interesting is I think every team could could get better because no team is complete. Oh, no, that's that's definitely the case. And every team, every team has a weakness. Every team has something they can get better at. Uh, but I, I just don't think that you know comparatively, you you kind of know who the top teams are in in the AL, whereas in the NL, you think okay maybe the Dodgers, but the Diamondbacks are also not that terrible. The Cubs are good, but what about the Cardinals? We know they're notorious for getting into October. What about the NL East with the Braves and the Phillies and the Nationals? The Nationals haven't been good. This haven't been as good as they they expect to be. The Braves have been better than expected, and the Phillies have both have been better than expected. Where is Jacob Degrom going to go, if anywhere, at the non waiver trade deadline? What about the waiver trade deadline? There's just so many question marks in the NL, and the AL. It's kind of a little more set in stone. You know, it's going to be the Red Sox and the sure. Yankees. You know, the Mariners are going to be there, or you know, well, the Mariners are probably going to be there, barring a second half collapse. You know, the Indians are going to be there, and you know, the Astros are going to be there. Uh, the rest of that is kind of, you know, 
up in the air as far as who might sneak in for a second wild card in the AL. But for right now, it, it looks like it's going to be uh, the Red Sox, uh, Yankees, and Astros kind of headlining that that group of teams. Obviously, the Indians are no joke, and like I said, the Mariners as well. Uh, nothing to sleep on as well. So who, Owen, do you think, I guess if you had to pick, I mean, who... Who are you? Who do you think a will needs the most help to trade deadline? And then who would you like? Also, who would you like to see go out and get someone? That actually segues great into the next little section of this this uh, topic of of baseball and trade deadline uh, preview and all this trading madness. Uh, there's there's a few teams that I think that that need the most help, um, and this is relative to where they are right now in the in the standings and where they can go given who's on their roster. Uh, I want to start in the NL, and this is a team that's that surprised a lot of people in the first half um, who don't follow baseball as closely as, as at least you and I do, and that's the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, they've, they've lost a little bit of ground in the NL Central. Uh, they're right now, I believe, a game and a half, maybe two behind the Cubs. Don't quote me on that uh, tonight. Uh, I'm not sure how the results went. But the Brewers are one of those teams that they got Christian Yelich in the offseason. They got Lorenzo Cain in the offseason. They were quietly putting together a very, very good team. Uh, obviously, Josh Hader uh, in the headlines, in the news for a, a lot of wrong reasons. But he's still yeah. a very quality pitcher. Uh, and, and you look at what they could potentially do with that team in the second half. Uh, you, you think back to uh, a few years ago, about a decade ago, when they went and got CC Sabathia on deadline day. And he turned out to be the the kind of catalyst for that push towards the NL Central title. Now they came up short, and CC Thuathia went to the the Yankees the next offseason. But it's just one of those things that you you can't rule out anything for a team that's on the fringes who has that desire and has had a long enough layoff where they think, you know what, we're gonna pull the plug on this, we're gonna or we're gonna pull the trigger on this, we're gonna go ahead and do it. Uh, and try to go someone. So I I'd like to see the Brewers get someone. It's it's it'd be fun to see them back in the postseason again. For sure. I mean, and and like you said, um, they it will be really fun. It, it's it's you know, it's fun to see them good again uh, back on the chase. Um, they and they definitely could you know strengthen the rotation. Uh, they got a couple good pitchers. Anderson and Chassin are pretty good, um, but they don't really have. When you look at the rest of the National League, they don't have a, a Clayton Kershaw or a Rich Hill or a John Lester or. A, uh, dare I say Sean Newcomb um, <laughs> you know it's just someone uh, you know they, they definitely need an ace or j- definitely just to, to shore up that, that starting rotation yeah no I definitely agree and that's something that they are going to be looking at as well over the next kind of I don't know what is it week until the trade deadline uh, gets here sometime uh, late next week early the week after um but, it, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. And I, I really do want to see the Brewers do well just because they've been out of it for so long. Um, and, and, you know, who doesn't like a team that's literally named after people who make beer? I mean, that's that's got to right. be the best thing ever. Oh, now, yeah. Now, yeah, for sure. And um, the slide. They got a great slide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the podcasts I, I listen to, uh, you know, obviously besides ours, the fantastic Hot Takes Only podcast, uh, is Starting Nine by Barstool Sports, hosted by Jared Carabas and Dallas Braden. Um, and one of the things they, they do on the show is something they call the Homer Minute, where they talk about kind of the teams that they, you know, they are fans of. They're, you know, they, they be the Homer for their team. 
for Dallas Braden, it's the Oakland A's. For Jared Carabas, it's the Red Sox. And for Justin Havens, their producer, it's the Indians. Um, and I, I want to talk about teams that I, I want to see go out and get uh, s- some help at the deadline. Um, but I, I will just, you know, I'll mention who they are, but I won't get too far in depth in it because I think you know who they are. It's the Red Sox mm-hmm. and the Braves. We know the Braves are definitely, they were not expecting to be here at, uh, at you know, this point last season, especially the off season. But they've been better than expected, if not even better than that. Uh, and I don't think they'll make the playoffs, but I think they, they might make a push to it. And they're the team who is on the fringe, who could make some noise, but they need help. Uh, Atlanta teams always need pitching, no matter how good their rotation is. Mm-hmm. Even in the Maddox-Smoltz-Glavin era in the 90s and 2000s, they needed pitching help. And it was just something that let them down pretty much every time out of those 14 consecutive division titles. Uh, and for the Red Sox, um, let me put it this way. The rotation and back end of the bullpen outside of Craig Kimbrell, Kimbrell is a disaster. Uh, Porcello has been awful this year for a player who's getting paid $22 million to uh, somehow win a Cy Young two years ago. Awful. Chris Sale is Chris Sale. You know you're going to get. David Price hasn't been that good this year. Rodriguez is on the DL. Pomerantz is on the DL. Steven Wright's on the DL. Uh, and Craig Kimbrell is just throwing heat at the end of the bullpen. But there's no bridge to him. So that means they're going to go out and get someone. So both these teams need someone in the bullpen, and they need, uh, for the Braves, they need a starter as well, uh, just because y- you can't trust Sean Newcomb in October because <laughs> he just he, he gets in love with his 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and he throws it over the middle of the plate, and you cannot, cannot, <laughs> cannot do that in the big leagues. I mean, I guess out of those two teams, you know, I mean, yes, the Red Sox are definitely the better team, but I guess the team that... I would be scared of it is definitely the Braves in the sense that I mean they need they they have a pretty good one two punch in the starting pitching but they need they need more you know uh, Julio Teheran isn't having a great season um, you know and uh, like you said uh, I I think that they they really do need help badly uh, the Red Sox have such a good offense um, that you know they can kind of get away with it at times but. Uh, the Braves really do need some help on the pitching front. Yeah, and and again, like I I tell people this all the time, the Braves always need pitching help. I don't care how good their rotation is; they could have five Clayton Kershaws, they still need pitching help. I mean, that's that's the situation, that's the reality of it in, in Atlanta. And whether you want to believe me or not is up to you. But that's you know from pretty much from a lifelong Braves fan, that's that's been the the kind of that's been the norm. For sure, and and to the to the point about the the other team, the Red Sox. What would be your starting rotation in the playoffs if, if they started today? Um, is it possible to clone Chris Sale? Because uh, I don't. <laughs> I right now I would not be comfortable putting any of those other starters out in in a playoff game. I mean, even Chris Sale last year in Game One. I mean, I'll be it's the Astros who won the World Series. He he was awful against the Astros. Uh, the whole rotation was bad against them, but again, that's the Astros who are just unreal top to bottom. Um, I, I, I would probably, I mean, all things equal, playing against a quote-unquote average playoff team, I'd probably run out there Sale in Game 1, Price in Game 2, and Porcello or Pomeranz in Game 3, depending on depending on the team, depending on the lineup, depending on how they're doing at the time. Uh, but probably, probably Sale, Price, 1 and 2. Uh, and then probably... You know, if they're a right-handed heavy team, Porcello. If they're a left-handed heavy team, Pomerantz. But again, neither one of those guys have been very good this year. They've both given up a lot of homers, which is definitely not a sign that a pitcher's having a good season. 
uh, e- even if it's a player, uh, a pitcher who gives up a lot of fly balls. Not, not Eduardo Rodriguez. No, not Eduardo Rodriguez. He he's not. He does not have that kind of efficiency that you need at the playoffs. Um, because you you take, um, say what a player do, what a pitcher does in say five innings, and you multiply that by one and a half to two times. If someone is taking ninety or hundred pitches to get through five innings, they're going to be taking about a hundred to get through two and a half innings, or maybe three innings, or two two and three thirds innings, two and a third innings, maybe three innings. You need to be efficient in the playoffs, and Eduardo Rodriguez is not one of those pitchers. He's he's not economical with his pitches. He falls in love with his fastball. He throws a lot of sliders as well, and it it just they're they're not wipeout pitches to the point where he can throw them over and over. If you have a wipeout fastball or a wipeout curveball, throw it all the time. Lance McCullers Jr. throws his curveball <laughs> all the time, but as, yep. it is a wipeout pitch. Eduardo Rodriguez does not have a wipeout pitch, and when you don't have that, you That's can't get away to throw it with throwing it over and over and over again because someone's going to foul it off and then they're going to square it up and where's it going to go over the fence? So that's, need, that's not something yeah. that can happen. You definitely need an out or, or some type of strikeout pitch, but and I he mean, does, I guess, he does have a solid changeup. I, I will give him that, sure. but it's it's not a pitch that it's not like a Clayton Kershaw. Uh, Curveball. Curveball. It's not that's, your that's Rich Hill curveball. It's it's not this so Chris funny. Sale backfoot slider. It's not this pitch that that when they throw it, they are thinking you are never going to hit this pitch, not once in your life. Uh, it just it, he doesn't have that kind of stuff, and, and that goes for uh, circling back to the Braves as well. That goes for Sean Newcomb as well. He's got a good fastball, sure, and he's got good secondary stuff, but it's not wipeout secondary stuff, and that's what separates the good pitchers from the aces every ace has that wipeout pitch that pitch that they're gonna throw it again and again and again and you still can't hit it sure no it's it's very interesting and yeah you know i, I can see your your reservations with with newcom and with the team but i mean i guess it's interesting right because we talk about you know I guess it's diff- a little different because the Braves, they're outperforming expectations. You know, they can, they can kind of – this season's already been successful, no matter if they make the playoffs or do well or not. But, I mean, I know this is crazy saying the Red Sox are, what, almost like 40 games over 500, but are they a serious contender then, given the pitching problems you're talking about? I mean, in terms of the World Series, you've got the Astros right there. And, I mean, you know, as, I mean, as good as they are, you know, you've got – Verlander and Garrett Cole have, have been two of the best starters in the game. So uh, I ha- it's weird to say a team as good as the Red Sox could be, you know, quite questionable, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I totally get that. But it, we've seen this over and over again, that teams slug their way to the playoffs. They have the best record of baseball. They're the best team in baseball. And all of a sudden, the postseason comes around and they just fall flat. It's just one of those things where it, it doesn't matter – kind of how good your lineup is in the regular season uh pitching is ultimately what will win you a world series and the red sox pitching is not good enough to carry them to the world series and to win the world series chris sale if there were four other chris sales in the rotation sure and if there was a couple in the bullpen absolutely but that's just not the case and yes their offense is amazing but you look at the you know, kind of the the worst case scenario, which is usually what is more likely to happen than not in the postseason. J.D. Martinez strikes out swinging. Xander Bogart strikes out swinging. Mitch Moreland strikes out swinging. Mookie Betts grounds out. Benintendi flies out. Uh, 
Christian Vasquez strikes out. I mean, it, it, you look at the worst-case scenario for every player on the team. Obviously, worst case is, is getting out, but there's just no real consistency on the other side of the ball for the Red Sox. You can get away with, in a long season, having guys just go go nuts. Mookie Betts is having an MVP-caliber season. Jaden Martinez is having an MVP-caliber season. Those guys are driving the ball all over the yard, producing runs left, right, and center. And yet you just can't think that this is a complete team because they don't have that extra element in the in the pitching staff, in the bullpen, that makes you think, okay, if they're in a one-run game against the best offensive baseball, they're going to win. You can't trust Matt Barnes, you don't think? No, 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 no. You cannot, cannot trust. If the Yankees play the Red Sox, in any kind of postseason series, and Matt Barnes is pitching, I will guarantee you, guarantee you, no matter who is hitting for the Yankees, he is going to take Matt Barnes' yard. Matt Barnes is a closet Yankee fan pitching for the Red Sox, and the sooner he gets that out of his head, the sooner he's going to be better for the Red Sox. But until then, he's going to serve up fastball after fastball after fastball right down the heart of the plate to the Yankees because he loves the Yankees. I am putting that on the record. Wow. So that that's uh that's pretty pessimistic. <laughs> no, because every time the Red Sox play the Yankees and Matt Barnes is in the game, nothing good happens. Nothing at all good for the Red Sox. I mean, sure, good for the Yankees, and probably Matt Barnes deep down is really happy. But it, it, look, I'd like to assume that he's as professional as they get. He does well for his current organization, which is the Red Sox. But when you grow up a Yankee fan, you not only hate the Red Sox, <laughs> but you, you, you just want to see them suffer and squirm. And it, it's really hard to change that. I don't care how much the Red Sox are paying him. It's it's hard to change that mentality. Sure. No. No. I mean, that's uh, that's. I mean, yeah. You'd hope, you know, because he's on the Red Sox, he'd uh, <laughs> he'd really contribute for them. But you know, I think it's going to be interesting. And I guess um, you know, to touch on it, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned the reliever problems with the Red Sox. You know, I think. The Cleveland Indians really uh, hit a home run with their trade for Simber and Brad Hand, because, like you said, frankly, the bullpen has been really, really bad. And um, now I look at Cleveland, and they definitely need uh, their bullpen has been struggling. But I look at this team, and you've got you have you know when they're healthy, you've got Kluber, Clevenger, and Bauer, three elite pitchers, and then. Now, when Andrew Miller comes back, um, he's been oh, he wasn't great, but if he can return somewhat to normal, you've got Simber, Brad Hand, uh, and Andrew Miller, and dare I say Oliver Paris, and then um, you know a good enough offense that's not great, but good enough. So I, I think the honestly, if I were the other teams, <laughs> um, I would be. Not that the Indians are the best. They're probably the weakest of those elite four teams. But I think Cleveland definitely addressed a huge weakness in the bullpen. And that their pitching, if our other teams, would scare me. Yeah, no, and I would say they're underrated, if anything. Uh, they, they've they shown time and time again that it, it, they can kind of get it done with whoever they have. Uh, you look at the postseason run a couple years ago. I mean, their starting rotation in the postseason was Kluber, Bauer, and... Josh Tomlin, right? I mean, Josh Tomlin's not even in the rotation nowadays. It, it's, yeah. it's it's amazing what what they can do with the players they have, and, and Terry Francona. It's it's just exactly. It's just a testament to how good of a manager Tito is and what he's able to do time and time again with that team. 
but I, that's very true. And and they they always seem to way to find a way to the playoffs and to usually you know be competitive. Uh, but again, I mean they have real holes in their lineup after their four, after the four spot. Um, they're getting and they're getting no production out of the outfield between Brandon Geyer and Rajay Davis. So uh, I don't know exactly who they should trade for, but they need another bat because uh, their one through four hitters are when they're all on are as good as any one through four in the game. But um, right now, but you know, yeah, they need help. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the outfield specifically, Geyer and Davis, because I know of uh, one one player in particular uh, plays for an American League team who would love to no longer play for his current team because they are the worst team in baseball. I'm talking about the Baltimore Orioles and Adam Jones. And Jones, there are rumors. I I would I would not rule out a trade to a team who needs a bat uh, for Adam Jones. Um, obviously, Machado is the kind of big domino to fall so far in the offseason, but you never know. I mean, all, once the first domino goes, the rest will follow, and it, it's we'll, we'll see if Jones gets traded, but... The indication is with his free agency up, upcoming this offseason, he's going to be moved to a, a contender uh, to get that kind of, you know, one last hurrah uh, sure. at, a, at a title before he hits free agency. Um, wrapping up real quick this section on kind of trades and deadlines and, and all that stuff, I want to mention two other teams who I think will – we've mentioned them already, but they're surprising people to say the least so far this year. And that's the Seattle Mariners. And the Philadelphia mm-hmm. Phillies. Uh, the Phillies were obviously in on the Machado sweepstakes, um, but they they missed out obviously to the Dodgers. But they've they've been sneaky good. They're right now atop of the division, I believe, if not tied for the tied for first with the Braves. Um, the thing is, the NL, especially the NL East, is so wide open this year. It could be literally anybody uh, of the teams who are you know obviously within within striking distance and the Phillies are one of them um, Aaron Nola has shown us how good he yep. is he was an all-star this year having a great season uh, Vince Velasquez has got great stuff um, and, and they've got just a great lineup with Reese Hoskins Jake Arrieta as well in the, in the rotation um, there's there's just a lot that could go right for the Phillies and I think you know, kind of the standard like any team maybe an impact bat and a an arm in, in the bullpen uh, would help them kind of take that next step. And I'd say the same with the Mariners, but I think the Mariners need a a kind of, not a big-name starter, but someone to take the load off of James Paxton, who's obviously thrown a no-hitter so far this year, and uh, Felix Hernandez, who we know who can be great, but is kind of in this weird transition between being a power pitcher like when he came up and this kind of finesse, command all of your secondary pitches really well uh, kind of pitcher. Yeah. Um, I mean, those two teams, it's, it's great to see them uh, there. Uh, like you said, in particular, I mean, the Phillies. I mean, it's a team, it's, it was really sad to see after those, you know, the World Series winning team uh, to, for them to get here. Uh, like you said, I, they really do need some bullpen help. Uh, they're really thin in that area. But uh, otherwise, man, I mean, I think they can really win the division. Uh, I don't want to jinx it, but I actually think the Braves are going to win the division. Mm, but, that's, a, that's a big call. But, uh, yes, it will be great to see the Phillies. And in terms of the Mariners, um, unfortunately for them, Houston's probably going to win the division. Uh, but who knows, man? I mean, anything could happen in that second wild card game if you, if you can get there. Uh, you know, so we'll see. I mean, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, imagine, cool. imagine yeah. in the wild card game, 
uh, it's say it's Yankees and Mariners, James Paxton against Luis Severino at Yankee Stadium. So, all right, so I want to sum things up. I mean, who are your four? Who are going to be the playoff teams? Uh, the three division winners in each league and then the second wild card playoff games and winners. Just name them. Okay. Uh, damn, put me on the spot. We'll start the AL because the AL is really easy. Um, Red Sox win the division. Uh, Yankees first wild card. Uh, Indians win the division. No wild card from the AL Central. Uh, Astros win the West. And Mariners take the second wild card. Obviously, the wild card game at Yankee Stadium. Um, as far as the NL is concerned, I'm going to go for the Phillies winning the division. Uh, I'm going to go for the Braves winning the second wild card. The Cubs winning their division. No wild cards from the NL Central. Kind of a theme this year. And then out west, it'll be the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks hosting a wild card game like they did last year, uh, hosting the Atlanta Braves. Wow. Okay. That's um. That's very interesting. I, I, I remember, I, I know earlier in the show, about a few minutes ago, I did say the Braves aren't going to make the postseason. Um, but it, the optimist in me wants them to do it. And, and since we're just kind of, you know, throwing – Throwing picks out of our ass, I figured, why not just pick the Braves? You know, do be the homer and, and just do it. Oh, but okay, let me ask you this though. You said that I mean, just real quick. I mean, you mentioned the Diamondbacks, right? But I mean, the AL, the NL West. Excuse, I mean, NL West has got four teams. We could, we could have all four could win the division, mm. and you know, I mean, I, listen, I, I, I know the Dodgers should be the favorite, but I mean, I'm very curious to see. How many teams from that division are going to make the playoffs, and which ones they'll be? So I, I for would me, honestly yeah. be yeah. very, very surprised if the Giants came close to winning that division. Second wild card, not a surprise, but if they if they came close to winning that division, I'd be very surprised. So, who did you say your two wild cards were? You had the the Braves, the Braves, and, and then Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks. Uh, Diamondbacks hosting the wild card game in Arizona. Okay. So interesting, interesting. So um, I've got the. AL, I've got the exact same thing. Uh, in the NL, I've got the um, the Braves, the Cubs, and the Dodgers winning the division, and the two wild cards being um, the Brewers and the Diamondbacks. So just a little bit different. But we will see. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's between the Brewers and the Braves. Um, I, if you ask me to pick right now, I, I, I'm going to say the Braves, but I, I honestly don't think they will. I just... For the sake of doing this right now, I, I'm going to pick the Braves. Okay, we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of a lot of arms on the market for yeah, people. And the trade after. deadline just right around the corner, as is the Premier League and the rest of club football. If you don't follow English teams and you follow, say, Barcelona, for which I say I'm terribly sorry, because you support a team that gets thrashed by Roma in two legs. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> Subtle dig at La Liga there? I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyways, no, uh, I, I'm really excited about the upcoming club season. I know you are as well. The World Cup just ended. Yes. And again, uh, congratulations to France for lifting their second World Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, first time in 20 years. Uh, good for them. And we really saw a lot out of the World Cup. We saw the the real emergence of Kylian Mbappe. We kind of saw that uh, two seasons ago, two club seasons ago, uh, at the end when Monaco made that huge Champions League run. But this was this was really Kylian Mbappe's kind of reassertion that he is going to be, if not already there, one of the top players in world football. Oh yeah, I mean he's incredible, and I, I just felt in uh, Emery's system, no longer there obviously, but uh, 
he was kind of just um, held back a little bit, you know. And, and in France, it's just, you know, counterattacking football. They kind of let Mbappe run free. And, you know, boy, is he, boy, is he an exciting talent, you know. Um, but on the subject of France, Owen, I'm very curious, you know. Um, there was a lot of interesting trends this World Cup. And, and France being really the good symbolic image of how just how strong counterattacking football was at this World Cup. Um, and I'm curious, you know, because I think that, um, I mean, A, do you think counterattacking soccer is going to become more popular in a national game? And B, you know, Didier Deschamps is still getting tons of criticism, even from, you know, people in the French media, in addition to outside people. So uh, do you think, do you think he can stay, and do you think that this counterattacking soccer is going to be something more to come? Well, I think teams that play on the counter are are proving us wrong more than they are uh, proving our point. You look at teams uh, like Leicester City a couple seasons ago, the most unlikely of story stories winning the Premier League, and they did it on the strength of a well-organized defense and counterattacking football. Liverpool, their run to the Champions League final this past season. What was it fueled by? It was fueled by the individual brilliance of their front three on the counterattack. There's a common theme here. It's it's not just teams dominating possession and really taking it to the other side. In cup competitions, especially counterattacking football is your best friend, just because it's it, it's so hard to maintain that that kind of dominance and that possession. Create all the chances. Create all the shots. Score all the goals. Uh, for for 90 minutes for about seven different no maybe not seven but for a, a number of different ties and when you play on the counterattack you you let yourself kind of be a little more open with it because that obviously the play is is physically going to open up there's going to be more space in behind because the players are the other team has committed so many players forward um, but it, 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 there's still going to be this dichotomy in football between these possession sides like Liverpool at times but also Liverpool on the counterattack. And obviously, yes, every team can counter can counterattack, every team can possess, but there there's no there's not going to be a real change here. It's still going to be in comp- competitions that this counterattacking style of football is going to be more the the what you see in in the league, it's going to be kind of the other way around, this more possession-based uh, create chances through crosses and uh, intricate one-twos and and what have you. So, you do you think I mean Listen, they won the World Cup. Let's let's you know. Let's give them credit where deserved. You don't think that France could some you know find a manager or a way to play more attacking football and still be as good? I mean, you know, not only the players that they had, but they still even left. You know, Lacazette and Martial and Kareem Benzema home. You know, and I, there's just it's a, it was amazing to me because. They played so disciplined and so effectively, but they had so much offensive talent. And, you know, it worked. When, um, here, here's here. the thing. When, when you win the World Cup, you you don't care about the style. You, you, you are literally world champions. There is no higher honor in the game of football than World Cup champion. So if you're a player or you're on that coaching staff or you're Didier Deschamps, you take that criticism and you shove it where the sun where the sun don't shine. I mean, you really don't care about it at all because you are world champions. So it for me, I think he's proved all the doubters wrong. I was definitely one of them, but they mm-hmm. they showed that hey, it doesn't matter that you how you did it. It matters that you do it, and they did it. So 
congratulations to France on a job well done. Um, and they'll have a tall task on their hands in 2022 when they try to defend that World Cup and not leave in or not get knocked out in the group stages like Germany this time around, who we've talked about before. They were very, very disappointing. And we could, you know, we obviously pointed to all the reasons that we thought they were, you know, why they were disappointing. But, you know, we won't get to that today. No, it's interesting, you know, to that trend, uh, I don't think France, I mean, it's so far away, but I don't think France will, um, you know, be one of those teams to be knocked out. I mean, they're so good. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, they don't have the problem of an aging squad, uh, something like that. But, you know, a couple interesting points I want to make. But number one is the way that we talked about with the France-style play, it kind of ties into one of the other big trends at the, at the World Cup, which was, you know, almost one-third of the goals that were scored were from set pieces. And I think that I've, I've been reading a lot about this, and I just think it's interesting that more teams really spend a lot of time practicing set pieces, everything from the practicing the service of them to the way that players can get free on free kicks. And I think that as soccer, you know, soccer fans – sometimes look down upon, oh, you know, it's like, oh, like, uh, they they won the game, but it was on a set piece. They couldn't create anything from their own play. But, you know, set pieces were really effective. And, you know, uh, France got one on set pieces. Um, Uruguay scored goals on set pieces. Belgium beat Brazil on set pieces. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's just interesting to see England, you know, how important imperative that was this World Germany Cup. Germany saved themselves from total Germany, embarrassment from on Tony set Kroos. piece. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think of that, Owen? No, we talked about this, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago as well, the importance of set pieces. And it, it's really, it's it's something that's overlooked, and I can't for the life of me understand why. Because if it's part of the game, and if it's something that you can practice, why not just practice it in the first place? It's it's one of those things where it's, it's kind of this, I don't want to say arrogance, but it's this idea that you have to do it a certain way. Football is... I mean, sports, they're just results-oriented. It doesn't matter how you do it. You just got to do it. And if it's something that can be done to help your game and you're not doing it, I think you're just sleeping on yourself and the competition. So there's just there's just a lot going on there. Yeah. No, but it's it's just interesting because, you know, when I, I played soccer and I'm, I'm reading, you know, I was like uh, – practice set pieces a little bit but not like a ton and you you know you see teams um you know uh i'll give you i mean for example you know manchester united when in sir alex ferguson days i remember i always felt that they just you'd always hear about them scoring winning a game on a corner kick and i i think that um it was just a really effect it's a really effective strategy in cup competitions when you don't want to open yourself up too much you know, and uh, to see teams, you know, just so effective on it, um, it, it makes you kind of, I guess, it, it's a big weapon to have. Yeah, it, it's it's gotten overlooked a lot, I think, and it's it's again, it just feels like if you're not doing it, you're kind of falling behind. It's not because everyone else is doing it. It's because you don't know how good they are at it. And a team could be very dangerous on set pieces. You don't recognize that threat. And then all of a sudden you get knocked out of a competition or you don't win the league or you lose a crucial game in the league. And it just, it just turns into uh, a, just a huge mess and a half. Um, 
And we were talking about the effect in cup competitions, but what about in, in the league? Well, with the league coming up, uh, I think a lot of teams are going to identify that maybe they are weak on set pieces or they need to practice it more, and they will be doing that. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, man. It was, it was very interesting. And I guess in summation, man, I, I'm curious. I, I thought that this World Cup was maybe the best ever, maybe the most entertaining um, you know, yes, there was no um, elite team per se. Um, I guess if you compared France as opposed to maybe the past World Cup teams. But what to you, Owen, made the World Cup? What was your favorite part of the World Cup? Uh, just this, this kind of. I don't want to say exchange of power. It's more just this. There is a. You know, being being the best on paper doesn't do anything anymore, and that's never been the case, obviously. But you see examples of Germany getting knocked out early, Spain getting knocked out early, Portugal, the defending Euro champions, getting knocked out early, underdogs like Croatia making it to the final, uh, teams like Iceland uh, putting up a good uh, good result against Argentina mm-hmm. in their first ever game in the World Cup. There's just a lot of different elements involved, and it, it was just for, there were a lot of compelling storylines, individuals breaking out and having great campaigns. Yep. Uh, goals. There were so a lot of goals. goals. Lots so and goals. lots of goals this mm-hmm. World Cup, which is always fun for uh, for those of us who enjoy seeing the ball in the back of the net. Uh, there's just a lot to like about this about this World Cup, and and you know obviously we are we are sad to see it go, but uh, it's giving way in less than a month's time to my favorite 10 or so months of the year, and that is club football. Uh, with the transfer window well and truly open at this point, we've had a few confirmed transfers and some rumors as well that have definitely caught all of the headlines. We'll start with uh, Allison. <laughs> That's a girl's name. Um, <laughs> Alisson, the Brazilian number one, uh, signing for my my number one team, Liverpool FC, for a world record 66 million pounds, uh, by far the world record for a keeper. And I want to get your sense, Willie, as someone who's not exactly a Liverpool fan like myself. Uh, <laughs> what do you think this does for the team as far as the betting odds? What do you think it'll do for them going into the season now that kind of the question marks about the defense and the goalkeeper have been, you would think, resolved? Um, and we know just how good their front three can be. Where does this put them in, in your kind of pre, pre-preview power rankings? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm very excited for this in the Premier League preview. Um, I think it makes a huge difference, man. Uh, you know, the questions with Liverpool are the defense and the goalkeeping, and um, I think that I I think that going into the new year, the team is going to be really confident about the way they're playing at the end of last season. And yes, I think this this goalkeeper uh, this goalkeeping is huge. And you know, you look at the other teams in in the Premier League and you know, Manchester United, David De Gea, Manchester City had, you know, Ederson played very well. Um, you know, Tottenham had, you know, other than a big gaff, you know, Hugo Lloris is, is a pretty good goalie. So I think that this was one thing that was really lacking for Liverpool, and I think this is going to make it an absolutely huge difference. Yeah, and we look at the acquisition of, Virg- of Virgil van Dijk in January as well that turned out to be a huge deal for them, really organized the defense and turned Dejan Lovren into a, a, a different person. He was great at the World Cup, too. Uh, he was another phenomenal World Cup. Uh, maybe lambasted for his comments a little bit, but uh, to me, he still had a really solid World Cup, and none of the goals that Croatia conceded were directly his fault, like they may be at times for Liverpool. Um, and and it, there's just a lot of positives for, for Liverpool, which makes me really happy. 
But I have this, you know, as a Liverpool fan, I have this little grain of doubt in, my, in the back of my head that thinks this is going too well. This is not all going to be, you know, uh, fine and dandy in 10 months' time. But, but who knows? You, you never know what could happen. It's a long season. Players get hurt from different teams and things happen. So uh, the bottom and line you, is we're just excited for it. And you know what, Owen? This is a really interesting, actually. Uh, I want to quickly... You know, while you talk about this, this makes me think about, and let's just rewind a little bit to the World Cup to round it out in the sense that, I, I own oh, the goalkeeping this World Cup made a huge difference. Um, you know, you talk about in, in you know, in the, in the World Cup final, you could argue that Subasic was at fault for a couple goals. In the quarterfinals, um, Uruguay's goalie made a big error. Um, in, there was, you know, other games, many other games that I can point to where, um, you know, goalies made a big difference, you know, Argentina, um, you know. So I, I think that goalkeeping was, yeah, it was a really big thing in, in this World Cup. This is the first World Cup in my lifetime or that I can remember where we've had goalkeepers make huge mistakes. I'm not, I mean, I'm not just talking, you know, a mistake that leads to a goal. I'm talking it's it's multiple keepers. It's not just one like Rob Green with England back in the day. Sorry to be yeah. England fans. It's, it's Muslera. For Uruguay, it's David de Gea for Spain against Portugal. It's Loris in the final made a howler. I mean, France was up four one at that point, so it didn't really matter um, in the end of the day. But it, uh, still, he made a huge mistake there. Um, Subasic, you could argue, maybe not at his best for the final, yeah. making a couple of mistakes here and there. But that's kind of harsh on him. He's kind of not having the greatest uh, of of situations health wise. But then you look at the other side of the spectrum. What good goalkeeping did for them. Jordan Thibaut Pickford. Courtois and Jordan Thibaut Pickford, Pickford. Yep. absolute phenomenal goalkeeping. From Courtois in that quarterfinal game against Brazil was out incredible. Of, out of this world, he, he was absolutely incredible. And and if the indication, if the indications that he's going to Barcelona are true, then they'll be getting or not Barcelona, excuse me, Real Madrid are true. Then they'll be getting another world class keeper, uh, maybe forcing Kaylor Navas out the door. Um, yeah. On yeah. the subject of transfers, though, um, we've mentioned this once or twice. Uh, but the giant elephant in the room is, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo going to Juventus for a roughly ninety million pound transfer. Uh, just, it, just it, you and I didn't think it was going to happen, uh, but it happened, and we have to deal with it now. Yeah, and you know, I think I, I've been, I had to after last show, I, I was really reflecting on it, and I just, oh, and you know. I think that this is a huge movement, and I think this puts them over the top. And, I mean, I think Juventus should be European favorites. What about you? Uh, I would I would put them in that category of favorites. Um, you have to put Real Madrid in that category. You have to put Barcelona in that category. And you have to put Bayern Munich in that category. Um, but Juventus were kind of always in that conversation to begin with. You know, they're, they're the best team in Italy. They're one of the top teams in Europe. They're usually always in the quarterfinals or later in the Champions League. But Cristiano Ronaldo gives them, again, that added element that pushes them further. Whether or not this makes them outright favorites, I don't want to say yet. And I, I wouldn't yeah. say it makes them favorites because we saw what happened to teams who were overwhelming favorites in the Champions League. Manchester City, we thought, were going to run away with it the way they were playing in the Premier League. And what happens to them? They get knocked out 5-1 on aggregate to Liverpool. Now, you could argue that the second leg at the Etihad was the... You know, there were some poor refereeing decisions that went against the home side in Manchester City, and they they came up short because of Mateo Laoz's uh, decisions to, you know, 
not like Pep Guardiola, but that's neither here nor there. Um, point is, you, you never know what's going to happen. Of course, the team could be great on paper, but you have to play the games, and I think that Juventus have this killer instinct now. It's just a question of how he fits in, how Cristiano Ronaldo fits in with the rest of the squad, especially with some of the new, uh, new players coming in, like Emre Chan from Liverpool. Yeah, it's... It's going to be really interesting uh, to see, you know, and that that transfer, it's funny, has been overshadowed. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how it works out, man. But, you know, and I think this is a big elephant in the room, and I just want to bring this up, and I honestly think this is going to be really interesting, which is that a lot of people think that Ronaldo's kind of taking an easy way out for his legacy because he's joining a top club like Juventus. However, I have to bring this up for the sake of this argument. You know, we, talk, we talked a few shows about how, Ronaldo um, has changed the way he's played and how, you know, Diego Simeone made those comments about, you know, on a neutral team, he would be better than Messi. And I, let's just hypothetically say, for the sake of argument, that Ronaldo goes to Juventus and they win the Champions League next year. And a Scudetto, which assuming they do, they're going to win a double, okay? Oh, and I think that, honestly, like, when you look, if that were to happen, he would have had success at three, at four, well, not, we won't count Sporting Portugal. We'll just count three teams, Real Madrid, Juventus, and Manchester United, and he'll have won a Euros and Messi not have won a major title. I think if he wins a, a title with Juventus, that does a lot for the legacy and honestly brings it very close. His legacy in terms of career achievements to very close to Messi. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, and that's interesting because I've always kind of skewed towards the Messi side of the kind of Ronaldo or Messi uh, debate. But I think if if Juventus is able to win the Champions League this year, I think Ronaldo solidifies his place as uh, as as top dog. I think he's better. He's got to be considered wow. to be better than Messi. Uh, okay. It's just Messi has only been able to do it with one style, with one that's team, right. and that's Barcelona. And, and I, I yeah. Yeah. With Ronaldo, he's had Sir Alex Ferguson, he's had Ancelotti, he's had Zidane, he's had Mourinho, and now he's had Allegri at Juventus. So it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he handles everything. But it, it's the it, the kind of balance of power at the top in world football from an individual perspective is definitely going to be uh, different from here on out. And I I think it's just interesting, Owen. And I, I just. We have to be ob- objective here and say, like, the hard stuff. And I just, you know, listen, Argentina, right now, obviously, they're going to have to go through some changes. But Argentina have by no means, you know, they have by no means been a weak team. They've been one of the world's best teams with a load of attacking talent. Um, and, you know, Messi, not this World Cup, but last World Cup, uh, in 2014, scored four goals in the group stage, but didn't score any after. But, I mean, it's just worth saying, like you said, you know, if you were to put Ronaldo and Messi on a neutral team, could, could Messi, we just will never know, as good as Messi has been for Barcelona, can he replicate it outside of that setting? Because the truth is, with Argentina, he hasn't. And, you know, that's not to diminish the career he's had. But when it just comes to who's literally the better player... Um, there's something to be said if Ronaldo can do that, and to proven with you know four teams and the way he can change his style. You know, I know he's taller than Messi, but I, 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 that's a really interesting debate, which maybe we will, we will never know. 
No, and I, I agree. That's a valid point because they offer different things to their team based on their skill sets. Messi is a player who kind of adds more to his team by getting teammates involved in attacking mm-hmm. moves. Ronaldo is a player who finishes all those attacking moves by his teammates. Sure, he'll have a part of it here and there, and he'll create some chances on his own uh, if he gets isolated on the wing. But they're just different types of players, and those comparisons are always going to be difficult, even though they they uh, pretty much play the same position. So there's never going to be a consensus, you know, Messi or Ronaldo, Ronaldo or Messi. It's going to be a matter of opinion. Right. And that uh, yeah, just depends on I've, how you measure their success. I, I, absolutely. And I, I guess, you know, to round out that thought, you know, uh, we can never judge. It's, it's just an opinion, you know. Um, but, you know, you can never judge a player on a small sample size but I, I don't know take Messi's record against Chelsea right and where he hasn't performed well um you just wonder you know I, I don't want to say be so ridiculous to say that Messi couldn't concede succeed in a, a physical league like the Premier League but it just seems like there's more ways to stop Messi outside of that Barcelona system than Ronaldo but it's just a matter of opinion again yeah, no, it, it's definitely just depending on, on, on what you like to see on a football pitch uh, mm-hmm. and the kind of stylistic differences, and, and it, it just turns into a really muddy debate. I just think that it's it's great that we get to see both of them, or at least we get to, we got to see both of them in their primes before uh, they retired. For sure. Um, maybe some players like to retire multiple times. I don't know. Uh, was that a shot at Messi? I don't know. Who knows? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> really briefly wrapping up this section on transfers, I want to mention your team, Chelsea, because of two different players going to potentially the two big Spanish clubs in Real Madrid and Barcelona. Eden Hazard uh, linked to a transfer to Real Madrid and Willian apparently subject to a third bid from Barcelona. Now you know what it's like to have Barcelona come and poach all your best players. Doesn't feel yeah. great, does it? Yeah, and, you know, there's uh, talks about Pedro moving, too. Um, I mean, look, we, yeah, I mean, <laughs> William um, at, at times floated out of the rotation. I personally love William. I think he's great. And, obviously, Hazard is one of the best players in the world. So, um, Chelsea showed really good form at the end of the last season, and it would be an absolute shame to lose those players. Um, it's just the whole... Chelsea's been a mess. There's all these links. Um, you know, we Chelsea just got a new manager, literally, like, right as preseason's about to end. Pretty soon, uh, actually. Not, not, I don't want to say about to end, but, you know. Um, right. So, I, yeah, I would hate to, to lose it. As a Chelsea fan, I would hate for them to lose it, either of those players. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, it, it's just one of those things where Chelsea's in another state of transition with a new manager again. Another one after mm-hmm. uh, two years of Conte, Conte who came in after two years of Mourinho, uh, and just so on and so forth. There's no consistency at, at the manager's helm uh, for Chelsea, which is a lot like Real Madrid, uh, just because uh, Perez has been through so many managers in his time as president of Real Madrid. And it's just one of those things where you would hope that's not the case because you, you don't really want to associate that with the English game because the, the beauty of the English league is, is that it's so... Uh, it's unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen. In La Liga, That's right. you pretty much know it's going to be Barcelona or Real Madrid every single year. Maybe Atletico Madrid under Simeone, but that's, you know, that's one out of three years, maybe four. Right. No, the, the Premier League is uh, 
you know, the funnest league. And at the World Cup, many of the players on the winning teams were Premier League players. So it was a really strong showing for the Premier League. Yeah, unfortunately, Tottenham players. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it was crazy. But, um, yeah, no, this is exciting. I cannot wait uh, for that. And uh, on the whatever the Premier League podcast happens, teaser, uh, it'll be really good. You should take a listen. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're hoping to get that. I certainly drop it by the uh, by the first day of the season on August 10th. Um, just working out specific as to getting our uh, our good friends up north uh, on the show to give us the Arsenal perspective. I'm talking about my brother and a couple of his friends who are big Gunners fans. So we'll get their perspective in a separate interview. Um, but we'll do the rest of the show ourselves, have the interview for you um, for uh, the start of the season. And that's something to look forward to. Uh, but before we do that, and before we go tonight, I want to get to our our great section, uh, parting shots. Willie, what is your parting shot, or what are your parting shots today? Oh wow, I got I got four short ones. Oh man, I'll keep them very here quick. we go. But I think they'll curious. Uh, I'll start with the the more sentimental ones rather than the, the hotter ticks, uh, which there are some hot ticks. But um, you know, I, I got to say first on the sentimental route. Um, Cleveland plays the is playing the Rangers in a three game series, and tomorrow Cleveland faces Bartolo Colon, and I just want to remember the good days of Bartolo Colon being on the team, uh, and the Being trade sexy. that brought Cliff Lee that brought Cliff Lee to the Indians. So it's amazing that he's been around for this long, and uh, you know he's one of those guys you you kind of just grew up watching, and and uh, those guys are unfortunately some of them aren't longer around. So it, it'll be really interesting to to watch that tomorrow. Yeah, he um, he spent some time pitching for the Braves last season, and safe to say it was an unmitigated disaster. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so on to the, the I guess, the hot takes of the question. So first is, um, you know, my favorite golfer who I think, even though Dustin Johnson had the best PGA Tour season, I mean, he's first in just about every category. Like, I think maybe the most talented player on the tour is Justin Thomas. But, you know, he's missed the cuts at the last two British Opens, and there's a lot to be made of the fact that he's a highball player. And I'm curious, you know, for him to to take a step into the elite categories, he needs to adjust his game more to Lynx golf. And I'm curious, do you think – I know he's really young, but do you think he can do that? Do you think it's a systematic problem with him, or do you think it was just a case of, you know, golf is hard? It's mostly just a case of golf as being really hard. Um, it's one of those things where, especially if you're Justin Thomas, you, you play the game at an altitude um, that most golfers don't. So, and, and that's what that's what's made him so good over his career is is the ability to put the ball so high in the air. But sometimes, uh, I remember Paul Azinger said this a couple of years ago during U.S. Open coverage: uh, the good players hit their long irons high and their short irons low. Short irons are supposed to go high. Long irons are supposed to go low. You kind of switch that too and, and learn how to manipulate ball flight. That's what separates the good players from the truly elite. I think Justin Thomas is on the cusp of that. Right. But as soon as he is able to manufacture that kind of difference and create that at will in his game, then he will be a top-tier player. Until then, he's a very, very good player. He's a major champion. No one can take that away from him. But he's just not quite that top, top-tier level yet. Right, exactly. And... um you know, that, that, that was a great quote and point, like you said. And, you know, and it, particularly when you think about the common public, I mean, you know, I love to follow all golf in the regular events. But when you think about, um, you know, a sport 
where you're really defined by the four majors. You know, if you can consist, if you can't perform in the British Open, you know that that hurts your legacy. So I think you know players like Phil Mickelson had success later in their career. He's a guy who hit the ball high. So you know, I just think that he's got to to start performing better, and um, or if he wants to really get in that elite group. Yeah, um, I'm, I totally agree with you there. Okay, uh, two more, two more, and I'll save the hottest one for last. But um. Number one, Owen, um, if France had lost the game, how w- much do you think Hugo Lloris would have been criticized? Because that was one of the worst goals I have seen. You know, it's funny that you mentioned on one podcast that Hugo Lloris has these moments from time to time where he'll just make boneheaded plays. But, I mean, that was one of the worst goals I've seen conceded, particularly on that stage. You know, and honestly, Croatia was right back in that game. Um, so, you know, yeah. Croatia, to me, were the better team in the game for the large part of it. Um, they, my brother was trying to tell me that that's exactly what France's game plan was. And yes, their game plan was to kind of play on the back, not on the back foot, to play defensively, let Croatia create, uh, have all the possession and then hit him on the counterattack. But rarely when that happens do you see a team dominate like Croatia in the first half. They created all the chances. They had all of the potential to score and were very unlucky to concede that free kick that led to the opening goal mm-hmm. uh, because that set them back because they really had to start going for it and be more aggressive. Uh, because sure. what they had in the first few minutes before the free kick was, which was which wasn't a free kick by the way, it was it was com- yeah, completely a dive. Yeah, freeze flop, freeze uh, flop. Complete dive there, awarded a free kick, which led to a yep. goal, which and- is not a great thing. But the, the point is, Croatia were not just dominating the game because France let them dominate the game. Croatia were dominating that game because they were, they were the better ball. team. They were playing better football and in that first half. I want to quickly follow up on that. I mean, you mentioned the Griezmann dive, but... Do you, what do you think about the penalty kick that was awarded? Um, I, I think it's a little harsh. Uh, I can see why it was given, but I can also see it being a little too harsh. Uh, if you ask me, in a World Cup final, that's a really tough one to give. Uh, it, I, I, I don't know where else you put your hand when you're in the air like that. Uh, no one jumps with their hands at their sides. Um, that's just right. that's just basic. Yeah, if you ask physiology. me, Owen, if you ask me, Owen, I think that Croatia got a little bit a little bit hosed, to, to put a better word, but. Uh, I think the, set, the first one was definitely, a, you know, m- most people would agree that was not a foul. The second one could have gone either way. But, I mean, it's just so unfortunate um, in a game where, you know, maybe their only World Cup final that they're, you know, making the foreseeable future, uh, given the size of their country, that they, you know, ha- were on the wrong end of two controversial calls. So, you know, that's tough. Um and and yeah, that but yeah, Hugo Lloris, that was he got lucky. France won because <laughs> uh, he would have been criticized a lot. Um, but then lastly, I, I think this is really interesting. Um, it's not even a hot take as much as you know. I think every every um, industry in the celebrity world has their kind of punching bag and people that just get such negative. The fans just love to hate, and for me. You know, Owen, I think that in the world of sports, I cannot think of an athlete that has been just beaten by the media as far as as Carmelo Anthony. And it's to the point where I I get the criticisms of him. And, you know, yes, I, I understand he's not, you know, a top five player in the NBA. 
I think that we learned that a long time ago. But, you know, it's to the point now, man, where it's like nobody – a lot of people talk like the people don't even want him on their team, dude. And I just think you, that – You mean like a team that paid him $27 million to go away? Yes. The, my Atlanta Hawks? That's that's right, Owen. And I think, <laughs> I think it's just – I can't think of an Owen – in my opinion, you know, he's still a good player. You know, yes, he's not an elite player. And I, th- I can't think – my hot take is that I can't think of an athlete that gets as much unfair criticism as him. It's just over-the-top criticism, like, uh, in my opinion, like yeah, all the t- No, I, I think that's fair, but I think at the same time there's this understanding that when you open your mouth and, and run it as much as Carmelo Anthony does, you better have the end game to back it up. LeBron does not always talk about how great he is. LeBron is much more humble, much more modest than Carmelo Anthony. But LeBron is the greatest player this generation has seen, if not the greatest of all time. Carmelo yeah. Anthony is nowhere near that. And he runs his mouth about three times as much as LeBron. So there's this thing where if, if you are going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. And Carmelo just, just does not walk the walk. He, he just doesn't have the, the game to back up what he says. And yes, he was much better when he was younger. And he's gotten older. But he's still a very self-centered, selfish player. And if if I'm someone in my organization, like the Hawks, for example, and I know that, I, I, I don't want him on my team. Well, I mean, it's interesting just because, yes, he does open his mouth a lot. That is true, um, at, you know, particularly recently. But, you know, he tried to, he's, he tried to sacrifice more the last season. And I just think, you know... I think people – I think the, the difference is – like we understood six, seven years ago, five even, that he wasn't this elite player that maybe people thought he was going to be when he was in his Denver years. But it's to the point where he's just gotten belittled so much that, hey, if I was an, if I was an athlete that I was as good as him, I mean, I have, you have to stand up for yourself at some point, right? Because it's, it's just like – Man, it's just the media just won't stop making him a punching bag, in my opinion. No, you know? I agree, but that's also part. That's also par for the course, and that's also playing in a big media market like New York. Um, it obviously he went to to Oklahoma City uh, this last season, but the bottom line is this: when you when you play in a big market, when you expect to be the superstar, you better perform, and when you don't, you are going to get chewed out for it. And unfortunately, he he faced a lot a lot of the criticism. I guess for you more than he deserved, but. You know, you can't say that you always want the ball at the end of the game when you're like a 30% shooter on game-winning shots. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, that's very true. Um, there, There's the clutch aspect and there is, you know, in playing defense. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like every player has their, like, kind of, like, people love him or hate him kind of thing. Some like the elite players like the Kobe's and LeBron's, but it's like almost like almost everyone in the media, it just seems like is going against them. And, you know, to be fair to him, you know, he definitely brought the attention when he forced the trade in New York, but he didn't have much help. <laughs> and um, I think that, yeah, there are certain things he could have done definitely a lot better in New York stylistically. I mean, you know, he holds onto the ball a lot. That's why he had a falling out with Antoni. But, you know, it wasn't like he's surrounded by, um, you know, a group of all-stars or anything. And so, yeah, it's just, I think it's just sad to see 
you know, one of the best scorers our game's ever seen. And, you know, maybe he's not a top five or a ten player, but I still think he's a very good player. And it's to the point now where it's like nobody, even fans or the media, treat him like they don't even want him on their team. <laughs> which is, I think there's a place for him somewhere, which is sad. Yeah. It's actually funny you mentioned Carmelo Anthony in the context of being overly criticized players because that actually goes into one of my hot takes. What's that? Paul Pogba. Mm-hmm. Still blatantly overrated. Blatantly overrated. Wow. Really? He Yeah. He Okay. He had a decent World Cup and he scored a good goal in the final. And, and this was after, what, a less than great season with Manchester United and a mediocre Euro campaign the season before that, and an even worse season with United the season before last. Uh, listen, his body of work is for the highlight reels. I mean, obviously you saw him show up in the Manchester Derby uh, in the second half of the season, denying City the chance to win the title in the Derby against United. But, but besides that, I don't even think he knows what he gives you and what his best asset is. Mm-hmm. Well, is part of that playing a Mourinho system? Maybe. But also the thing is with Pogba is you have this expectation for what kind of production you're going to get. You're going to get a lot of assists with some goals sprinkled in there. Okay, you don't get that. Maybe you're going to get a lot of goals with some assists sprinkled in there. You don't get that either. So what do you what do you expect out of him? What do you what do you even think, if you are a Manchester United fan, what do you think is a good season from Pogba? Can, because it's it's clearly the argument is it's that it's not something you can qualify, not something you can put into a number. It's oh he he adds this this dimension and this length and this charisma to the team. Well, yeah, a lot of players do that. Does that mean automatically that they're the best players in the world? I mean, I, I'm just not seeing the hype around Pogba now. Part of well, this, I will admit, is I'm a Liverpool fan and I just don't like mm-hmm. United at all and everyone who plays for United. But the point is that there's – I just, again, I'm not seeing the hype around Pogba. Okay, so I got two follow-ups to what you said, which I think is really interesting. So number one in terms of what it gives you, do you want to see Pogba be the kind of Juventus attacking Pogba where he you know, has flashy assists and goals around and just driving forward? Or do you think he's better served in a, in a France role where, at his best, at his very best, he can be both defensive and gritty in the midfield and then make driving runs forward as more of a box-to-box player? Well, I, I think he needs to be more in the, in the, in the mold of an Angolo Conte, mm. but wow. with, an atta- with an emphasis on attacking. So for me, he needs to be more like Nabi Keita because you look at these two players and they're both incredible athletes. But mm-hmm. only one of them seems to really portray that on both sides of the ball. With Pogba, you mm-hmm. don't always see it on one. You see it maybe some of the time with his goal-scoring ability. Some of the time you see it with his passing range. Some of the time with just his ability to run from box to box over and over and over. It's incredible. Over it's really incredible. But you just there's there's no consistency as far as what you're looking for, and that concerns no consistency on the pitch, and it just turns into a frustrating situation for people who want to see him do well. Like I want to see professional athletes do well. I want to see Pogba do well, but I, I still just think he's getting too much of the credit. Yes, he scored a goal in the World Cup final. Okay. Every Croatia player, including the goalkeeper, was looking the other way. I could have scored that goal. Okay, maybe not. I could have scored that goal with my weak foot. But the point is, it's that's not a a terribly tricky finish for a professional footballer. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sure. Um, it's really interesting. Like you said, it's been incon you know inconsistency. Um, I mean, I guess if there's one thing we've I guess we've learned, um, you know, I think that. So two thoughts I have. You know, number one, um, Pogba to me, at his very best, kind of like you were just saying, is just kind of like his ability to just run box to box and to do a little bit of everything. Like, I don't think he's going to be this guy um, that's, you know, driving forward and, and just is scoring all these these goals. But if he can just be more like a, a Conte or just play with guys, if he plays with guys who are disciplined, um, he can both play defense and go forward and be a really good two-way player. Um, but I guess my bottom line with Pogba is um, – I mean, do you think he's been disappointing as a player or relative to his transfer fee? Because, yes, his transfer fee was, like, another world. And, like, maybe that's more Manchester United's fault. Um, because I think if you look at his performances, he's still been a very good player. But I guess when he got this hefty transfer fee, everybody thought he was going to be, you know, one of the best players in the world, and he hasn't been that. Well, when you, it, part of it, that that's kind of what comes with the player is is the transfer fee and and obviously uh, I've been someone who hasn't talked about the transfer fee is oh it's the market rate um, and and that is true that is kind of the market rate for someone of his ability but I think there is this also this expectation that Pog Pogba is more than just this this kind of high quality player who plays for a side like Manchester United I think he's he is this marketable personality he is this guy who has to be the face of a brand and it just doesn't seem like the performances match that i mean you look at you look at guys who are are on the faces of brands you think of nike and tiger woods in golf lebron james in basketball so on it's michael jordan with the n1 so on and so on but with pogba you don't see that as much and i might just be rambling out of my ass here but it for me it's a case where it's just not adding up as far as what he gives you just him the person and him the footballer it's just not adding up well you know it's interesting Owen, because i've read a lot about him and i think that i i am actually glad you brought this up i think pogba he Pog, in the articles i've read he cares a lot about having fun and he he genuinely loves soccer and being happy and i think that this brand kind of this big personality that we see is not necessarily because He's like trying to be full of himself and bring the attention, but just because he just likes having fun and, and he likes to be, you know, like he plays his best when he's his happiest and he's just a goofy guy. And so for him, you know, I think that this could simply just be a case where, you know, he doesn't like them, he's not happy with his manager, he doesn't like the system he's in, and if he moves somewhere where he's happier and that fit him a little better, I think he could succeed. Um, I would agree that his performances haven't quite added up, but I think there's a little bit more. I I, I, just, I think simply he just doesn't fit at Manchester United. Yeah, I I don't know what to make of Pogba. I still just personally don't see the hype of it, and I I don't know. I it might be the Liverpool bias in me. It probably is, but I just am not. I really so, am not seeing the hype. What is what does this France performance do for you? Because he he was one of the better players on the team. Um, I would say it did, and it sh- he showed me this potential that he has. He has this potential to be the player who 
every time he steps out of the pitch, you look at what he does on the ball. Mm-hmm. For France, that wasn't necessarily the case. Right. For France, it was more, what is Griezmann doing? What is Giroud doing? What is Mbappe doing? Mm-hmm. It, it, the focus wasn't on him in this World Cup like it should be for a player of his, his quality. And I think that's that's something you look at when you're looking at players like this. But maybe maybe it's also the case of, you know, now that Pogba has seen that he can play that way and win, maybe he'll come back to United and will say, okay, I understand that if I'm really committed to playing more of a defensive role as well, and this can help our team, then this is something I'll commit to. Um, and, and maybe, you know, we, we witnessed the start of a new Pogba that's more disciplined. Yeah, it, it could very well be that that's the case. It very we'll, well could be. And that's what yeah. Mourinho was getting at in his press conference recently. He's, it, he's it, getting at that same idea. It is very interesting. He's an incredibly polarizing player. Yeah. But for the sake of uh, not rambling over and over and over again, we've pretty much run out of time here on the show. Uh, I hope those hot takes were hot enough because – that that one take about Podba got me going when I was watching the game, and, and again, just still, the more that I think about it, the more that I just don't think that there's there's uh, a super, super bright future, or at least not as bright as I thought it was going to be in his future, it, coming for Paul Pogba. I don't know. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it's, uh, it, is, it is interesting, man. It is very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, they say uh, better late than never, and we usually do these on Thursday night to have them out Friday morning, but just things happened last night, and we weren't able to sit down and record this podcast, but I hope you were able to enjoy it on your, probably Saturday when you hear this, uh, or at least when it goes up, Saturday, Sunday, whenever you listen to it, I don't know, but thank you so much for being, uh, again, a loyal fan of the show. We really appreciate the the support. Uh and if you like what you heard here, feel free to feel free to share the link for our show with your friends. We're working on getting the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts as well, so be on the lookout for that uh, announcement coming shortly. And uh, last thing, our Premier League podcast uh, will be, uh, like always, accompanied by a, a written piece. We'll also have a special guest in the show or a group of guests on the show to give us the Arsenal perspective. Uh, so look for that in uh, early August before the 10th when Premier League officially begins Is there a again. perspective? I mean, are they actually going to win the title? Oh, no, but it's going to be hilarious because they're probably all going to be hammered and I probably will be as well because <laughs> it's just, you know, yeah, gun is yeah. Yeah, for sure. But thank you so much for listening to the show. If you like what you heard here, feel free to follow me on Twitter, follow Will on Twitter, um, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear what you have to say about the show. And uh, hope you are looking forward to the next one, which will be probably probably our Premier League preview. Uh, now that I think yeah. about it, just because we're going to be at it, we're going to be traveling the next uh, week, week and a half or so. Um, so lots to look forward to in the not too distant future. Premier League's around the corner, baseball is heating up, and we'll see what happens at the Open on Sunday morning. So for Willie, I'm Owen. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Hot Takes Only, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>